Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, whether you're brand new to Ward Church or have been here a long time, I want you to know that God loves you, and I love you too. Before we dive into the Old Testament story that we've been studying so much these days, uh, who knows the location of the largest wall ever created? It's in China, the Great Wall of China, and it is enormous. Uh, here's a photo of my friends Soon and Aaron Pak when they visited the Great Wall of China when they lived there some time ago. Uh, they're on top of the wall. Look how thick that wall is. You could drive a chariot, you could drive a car across the top of the wall, and look at the background of the picture, how far that wall goes. Anybody know how long the Great Wall of China is? 6,000 miles. Construction began in the year 220 B.C., and continued off and on uh, through the Ming Dynasty in the 1600s. At one point in history, there were 800,000 people laboring on this wall full time. In fact, people could spend their entire lifetime from boyhood until their death working on this great wall. Kind of makes the wall that we've constructed over the last three weeks uh, mostly out of paper uh, seem kind of insignificant. But make no mistake, this is a great wall. This has been built from your commitments and your prayers and your uh, confessions. And we've seen this wall rise up over the last several Sundays as a visual metaphor that we all contribute in a small way and it adds up to something really great when we all work together. We've been studying about the ancient construction project led by a man named Nehemiah uh, 500 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And we've seen how Nehemiah was moved to tears over the condition of the city of Jerusalem, his homeland. The walls had been broken down, and the city was vulnerable, the people were vulnerable, and the name of their God was being mocked and maligned, and Nehemiah finally says, that's all I can stand, I can stand it no more, and he knows he's got to personally do something about it. So he approaches his boss, the king of Persia, the most powerful man in the most powerful empire of the world at that time, and asks for a leave of absence that Nehemiah might go and personally oversee the restoration of the walls. He asks the king also for lumber to build, rebuild the gates, and the king grants it all. Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, he inspects the wall, and he recruits the people, and everybody's in to help with the rebuilding. Everybody, not, not just the construction professionals. Everybody's in. They persevere through opposition and ridicule, and they complete the entire wall around the city in 52 days. That's what it said in chapter 6, uh, verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elu in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. So the wall is finished in chapter 6 of Nehemiah, but Nehemiah is 13 chapters long. There are seven more chapters after the wall is completed. Now why does the book of Nehemiah end with the completion of the construction project? Because Nehemiah is not about the rebuilding of a wall. It's about the rebuilding of a people. God's people had drifted far away from him, and God is calling them back to himself. And he is rebuilding them and reshaping them to be his people once more. We saw last week how after the wall was completed, Nehemiah called all the people together in the city square, and the priest Ezra mounted this high platform built for this purpose, and he read from the scriptures for six hours straight. 
And the people didn't get bored. In fact, they were mesmerized. They were gripped. They received the teaching. They were grieved by what they heard and, uh, and confessed their sin and revival broke out in that place. Confession then becomes a regular part of the people's worship. Later in Nehemiah, uh, it says this about a different, a different time, Nehemiah chapter 9. They stood there where they, read, where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So I have that, if I have this right, the order of worship uh, on this day looks something like this. Bible reading, three hours. Confession of sin, one and a half hours. And worship, one and a half hours. Would you go to that church? You think you'd run out of things to confess in an hour and a half? Not if you read the Bible for three hours first. There's a natural order to these things. First, they hear the scriptures, and, 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 they're, and they're grieved by the distance that exists, the gap that exists between who I am and who I'm called to be. And I confess my sins, and then I'm naturally moved to worship and give God thanks to the God who accepts me no matter what, to the God who redeemed me in spite of myself. They flow naturally from one to the other, but Nehemiah's people still weren't finished yet. Next, they're gonna recommit themselves to God. The next, in the natural order of things, they're going to recommit it themselves to God, and they're going to do it in a very formal way, kind of like making a contract with God himself. Today we're in chapter uh, 9 and 10 of Nehemiah. This is what you heard read earlier, uh, Nehemiah 9, 38. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. It is a binding agreement. There are consequences to this. They're putting it in writing. They could not be more serious about this. And although the language sounds covenantal, uh, technically this is not a new covenant. It's new adherence to the old covenant. And the leaders went first, and all their names are recorded there. And in kindness to our scripture reader and all of you, we skipped over the names of all the leaders recorded who, who got up first, and the leaders signed this covenant. And then it says the rest of the people, this is Nehemiah 10, 28, the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all those who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through the Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. First the leaders sign it, and then all the people sign it. And the language of, of curses and oaths sounds strange to us, but notice that the people not only swore to walk obediently, they swore to be punished if they didn't walk obediently. That's what it means to enter a curse. And often covenants, including those covenants between God and people, had curses associated with them. For example, on Mount Ebal, when uh, Moses said to the people, if you do not obey, this is Deuteronomy 28, 22, if you do not obey, the Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. You think that might encourage covenant faithfulness? Modern day examples, the old children's rhyme, when you were a kid and you wanted somebody to know you were really, really serious and you were not going to break this promise no matter what, when you were a kid, you might have said, 
cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Like hoping to die wasn't bad enough, so we had to add stick a needle in my eye, which is the grossest thing I can ever possibly imagine. That's a curse, an oath and a curse to show the seriousness of intent. Last week, we saw the important role of confession in spiritual life. Pastor Terrence walked us through that, the important role of confession. And today, we're going to look at the role of commitment, of oath-making, of vow-making in spiritual life. Psalm 7611 says, make vows to the Lord and fulfill them. This is a command from the Bible. Do you do this? If you read through the Bible very carefully at all, especially through the Old Testament, you'll see this is a very important part of people's spiritual lives. In Genesis 28, Jacob makes a vow to God that's a financial vow. And then in 1 Samuel, uh, first chapter, Hannah makes a vow to God that's sort of a family vow, has to do with her child. David in Psalm 132 makes a vow to God that has to do with worship. He promises God that he will provide a place for the people of God to worship. People in the Bible would make these very serious vows to God. Now, why did they do this? Because it was voluntary on their part. It's because they understood there's an enormous difference between a preference and a commitment. There are a lot of things I would prefer to have in my life happen. I'd prefer that my checking account is always perfectly balanced at the end of the month. I'd prefer that my teeth are always flossed. There's a lot of things I would prefer. How many of you would prefer to have your checking account perfectly balanced and everything accounted for well? How many of you would prefer that? How many of you at any point in your life have ever bounced a check or had something rejected due to insufficient funds? Any, yeah. The good news is Financial Peace University is going to be offered again in January. <laughs> and uh, you might want to check that out. There's a big difference between just preferring something and making a vow. When you go to a wedding ceremony, you don't hear a groom say to the bride his preferences in a moment like that. I'd prefer to stay with you for better, for health, for richer, as long as you stay in reasonably good shape. You don't hear that kind of thing at a wedding. You hear a vow. I'll be with you for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. I'm putting a stake in the ground no matter what I commit. And as a general rule, people are not transformed until they make a decision. People are not transformed by a preference. Now, some people think that Jesus forbid vows, and it kind of sounds like that on the surface. These are the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5, 33. Jesus said, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oaths, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, says Jesus, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black." All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So was Jesus forbidding vow making? The early church did not hear it this way. The apostle Paul made a vow recorded in Acts 18. And in the book of Revelation, John records an angel making an oath. 
We need to understand what was going on in Jesus' day. The rabbis of the day came up with a system, a grid, for determining which vows had to be kept legally and which vows somebody could get out of or be released from. This comes from extra-biblical material, not in the Bible, but what they decided was vows made in the name of God, those had to be fulfilled. But if a vow was made in the name of something else, even if it was the name of heaven, the name of Jerusalem, the name of my head, the name of the earth, uh, those things, those vows could be broken. So what do you think people started to do? They started to swear on the name of other things. Like a child crossing their fingers behind their back when they make a promise. They had no intention of keeping that vow anyway. And Jesus says, this is ludicrous. All those other things are created by God and are under the authority of God. And if you swear in the name of anything, ultimately you are swearing in the name of God. You can't change the language and get a get out of oaths free card. Jesus says, let your yes be yes. Do what you say you're going to do. It is better not to make an oath at all than to make an oath you have no intention of keeping. Oath-making is a part of all biblical covenants. Commitment transforms people in a way that preferences never could. That's why over and over again in the Old Testament, people ask, God, what is it you want me to do? And then they make a vow. They make a commitment. John Wesley writes in his journal that one night he was with a bunch of believers and he says, we resolved with deep resolve late into the night. They resolved together to open up their lives to give God space to work in them and through them. The people of Jerusalem, under Nehemiah's leadership, bound themselves with a curse and an oath. And what was that oath? Let's look at it again. Chapter 10, verse 29 The oath was to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully, how many? All, all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. We've now heard the scriptures read, and we're going to commit ourselves to do what it says. Again, Nehemiah led the people through a process that included the rediscovery of scriptures, The people now realize that they've not been obeying all the decrees and laws and regulations of God, and they were grieved by that discovery, and they pledged themselves, they vowed themselves to do better. What kind of oath are you ready to make today? Which commands, regulations, and decrees have you been ignoring or violating? Are you ready to make a vow? You ready to put a stake in the ground? You ready to change something? Are you ready to move from preference to commitment? Again, it's a process. We read the Bible, we confess our shortcomings, we worship, we commit, and maybe you're in a place where you're ready to do so. Chapter 10 goes on, even though they committed to do all the laws and decrees, it spells out specifically in chapter 10 three specific areas that are kind of curious. They'll do all the laws, but specifically they mention three. The first one is marrying people of faith. This might seem like a small thing, but over time more and more people were marrying spouses who were not following the Lord. They married people even of other nations who had other gods. Why is this a problem? Because if your spouse doesn't share your faith, it creates problems for faith practice, for child rearing, and it dilutes the faith of the community. The people just hadn't given much thought to spiritual life when it came to spouse searching. And they commit and say, we're going we're to make that number one priority. 
faith compatibility. This is the way it says it in verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. In a time when parents had more control over who their children married, right? I always thought arranged marriages were a horrible idea. Most Americans think as a terrible idea, arranged marriages. I thought that was a terrible idea. Then I had a daughter. (laughs) And I think the idea has got some merit. And I would want for my daughter a godly man of faith. The people say, we will consider faith in the marriage of our sons and daughters. Then the next section is all about the Sabbath, the Sabbath. Uh, They had gotten lax on Sabbath keeping. God's law requires that every seventh day is set aside for rest and worship. And they'd gotten really off track on this. And so they recommit to the Sabbath. This is what it says in verse 31. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, new moon festivals, and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. They commit they will honor the Sabbath and they will participate in the temple practices. And the third area specifically spelled out is support for the temple and its personnel. They commit to the physical needs of the temple and of the temple workers. This is the last section of chapter 10. It says, We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God to the priests the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all of our trees, and of our new wine and oil. We will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest, descended from Aaron, is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of God to the storerooms of the treasury." The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary are kept and where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers stay. We will not neglect the house of our God. The people emphatically declare, we will not neglect the house of our God. We will support the temple and its personnel through our tithes and offerings. That word tithe means 10%. They would bring 10% of all their production, 10% of all their income into the temple. And then beyond the tithe, they commit to bring food and supplies to the ministering priests, gatekeepers, and singers. They'll bring food to the priests and the singers. And you know what priests and singers eat? Judging by what I see around our church, it's mostly donuts and Girl Scout cookies. But generally, they, they, they agree to support the temple personnel. And I realize this section of the sermon, sermon could appear very self-serving. 
But it's what they did. They committed themselves to support the temple and its personnel. And as you know, this month we're celebrating our buildings. People don't think much of bricks and mortar, but it's what happens inside the buildings that matters. How God has used our space. And we're kind of celebrating how God has moved on our property and throughout our building. I hope you get a chance to do one of the scavenger hunts and kind of celebrate with us the way God can use buildings. Nehemiah's people commit themselves to the structure and to the work of the temple. So what would it look like if we made commitments like the people of Nehemiah did? On the way in, you were handed a little Nehemiah commitment card. Looks like this. Please pull this out this time. You have your Nehemiah commitment card. This is a chance to make an agreement in writing between you and God, one-time commitments and one-year commitments. The first one says, make a one-time gift to the Thanksgiving offering, which is for the maintenance of our buildings. You can make a one-time gift toward the maintenance of our buildings, just like the people in Nehemiah, Nehemiah's day. Number two, it says, complete the building prayer walk slash scavenger hunt. That's a chance to walk around and pray for the building and all the activities and find out what goes on and how God uses our buildings. And number three, make a one-time gift to the impact fund. That's the general fund that supports all the programs and ministries. Those are one-time commitments you can make. But here we are in November, and we're thinking about our New Year's resolutions for 2024. And here's some commitments God might be prompting you to make. I will honor the Sabbath by participating in worship services every Sunday unless sick or out of town. I will honor the Sabbath law. Once every seven days, I will gather with other believers to worship unless I'm physically unable to do so. And then I'll watch online or attend a church where I am. Is that a commitment God's calling you to make like he called the people of Nehemiah to make? Number two, I will pray for the pastor at least weekly. Honestly, I had this on the list and off the list because I was worried about it appearing kind of selfish, asking you to pray for the pastor. But Nehemiah's day, they supported the temple personnel, and this is the best way, honestly, you can support me. Not just because I'm battling a cancer recurrence, but I need your prayers for my leadership and for my spiritual life and for my family. And I have a group of prayer partners, and every month I share uh, prayer requests with people on that distribution list. And if, if I can add you to that list, please check that box as well and commit to pray for me. I'm, I, I've gotten past any guilt I feel asking for that because um, I need it. And then thirdly, uh, I will change my tithing and giving habits to become a systematic, regular percentage giver. I'll set it up automatically so that I'm a consistent giver I will raise the percentage that I'm giving so I move closer to the tithe asked for in the law of God. Um, I will increase my giving on a regular basis. And there's a place for you to sign your name at the bottom as a declaration of commitment. On the backside, you'll see a little uh, QR code because you can fill this out digitally, either using the QR code or on your Ward Church app. It's right there on the front page of the Ward Church app. That'd be the easiest way. You can do it digitally or on paper, or I'm going to ask you actually to do both. If you do it digitally, it'll save some processing work. But I want you to take this card home this week and bring it back next Sunday. If you're married, you can't make a commitment without talking it through with your spouse. And you want to pray about your commitments, you're going to take this home, pray about it, talk about it, and bring it back next week. When we wrap up their series on Nehemiah, we'll present our commitments just like the people of Nehemiah presented theirs. All right, take this home, pray about it, chat about it. 
Making commitments is countercultural. We live in a commitment adverse culture. We don't like to commit to a marriage, to a job, to a friend group, to a dinner date. We like to keep our options open. Ironically, Planet Fitness advertising doesn't focus on the quality of the equipment or even the benefits of health. The big, bo- the big boards for Planet Fitness, what do they say? No commitment. No commitment. You can sign up month to month. You can quit at any time. Uh, their advertisers have figured out that Americans are commitment averse and play into that. No commitment may be a very good marketing strategy, but it is a horrible fitness strategy. It turns out there's no such thing as, a, as no commitment fitness. There's no such thing as no commitment marriage. There's no such thing as no commitment spiritual growth. Nehemiah called the people to commitment as part of the process of rebuilding. They thought they were restoring a wall, but in truth, God was restoring them. And God will restore us as well. Will you pray with me now? God of mercy and grace, you are the source of all that is good. You are faithful and forgiving. You are the covenant keeper the one who always keeps his promises. In these past few weeks, I have sensed that your Holy Spirit has been at work in us. You are calling us, renewing us, breaking our hardened hearts, reminding us of your work in this world. Help us to do what the psalmist spoke about, make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. We offer to you our commitments and pray that you would find us increasingly faithful to the life to which you have called us. This we pray in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. And everybody agreed and said, Amen. Amen.